Hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Laura, and this is Where Work Meets Life. I'm very excited today to be chatting with Kelly Thompson. Kelly is a women's leadership coach, an author, a speaker. Uh, She recently wrote a book uh, about closing the confidence gap. And I'm really excited to speak to her about this book today. I was connected through Kelly uh, as she worked with Cy Wakeman. And many of you will remember that Cy was on the podcast not once, but twice. And a friend of Cy Wakeman is a friend of mine. But what really struck me about Kelly was her passion and her energy around helping women leaders advance in their careers and gain clarity and confidence. And it's not just about women. It's about anyone who's challenged with confidence uh, in their lives and in their careers. Kelly spent 15 years in corporate America um, before she took the leap into leadership. And and like me, she does keynote speaking. She's an author. Um, she has an MBA, and she also has serves, served as an adjunct management faculty at the University of Nebraska in Omaha, where she's based. She's certified in many things, including reality-based leadership, which I just love. Um, she also has been featured in Forbes, Market Watch, HuffPost, Parents, and many other publications. Um, we're really going to talk today about how we can close the confidence gap that might be getting in the way of our career progression. Although this gap tends to be more in women than men, these topics are applicable to anyone, especially minority groups uh, who have struggled with progressing in their careers when they look or they identify in different ways from the majority group that are typically the ones in charge. So let's talk about closing the confidence gap to thrive in your career. Welcome, Kelly. Oh, thanks for having me. That was such a wonderful intro. My pleasure. Anything else you can tell us about yourself and your situation in life? Yeah. And so I know the title of your podcast is Where Work Meets Life. And so that was a beautiful work introduction. But in my life, I am married to my husband, Jason. We've been married since 2018. And I have a senior in high school who is about ready to graduate and has a very big case of senioritis. So we're getting ready to launch her out into the world. And so those are some of the things that I'm thinking about and working on while I'm also trying to run my own coaching business. So Wonderful. I know what that's like. We have one who's launching too, Nicholas, who's uh, finishing grade 12. So it's an interesting time, exciting, emotional. It's all the feelings, right? It's you're excited for them. They're excited for them. And you probably feel the same thing. You know, you're nervous. I'm nervous about, okay, what's it going to be like when we're empty nesters? Is is she going to be okay in college? You know, is everything going to work out? So you're so right. It's like the whole spectrum of emotions. Totally. So... You've raised a a daughter. Um, We know that girls and women struggle a bit more with confidence on average. You know, there's exceptions all over the place, but on average compared to boys and men. So tell us what led you to focus on wanting to close this confidence gap for women. You know, honestly, it was my own experience. I grew up um, working primarily in banking and in financial services. And, you know, in the early 2000s, you know, I never stopped to really think about, oh, there's like all the all the leaders are men. I mean, it just kind of just the, was the way it was. And, you know, banking was a very male dominated industry. And so it wasn't uncommon for me to be one of the only women in the rooms. And I remember just personally having kind of this aha moment when I was, I don't know, maybe right around 30 ish. 
And I was sitting in like a gray conference room, sitting, you know, in an all day meeting. And I remember like feeling really frustrated, like, oh, this conversation is just going in circles. And, you know, we got a bathroom break and you know, go into the bathroom. And I was like, oh, why am I, why am I so annoyed? You know? And one of the things I started to think about, I was like, oh, well, we're just kind of hearing from the same people over and over again. And I was like, hmm. And most of the people we're hearing from are men. And so I kind of thought to myself, I'm like, well, are there more men than women in this room today? And I was like, well, actually, no, there isn't. The leaders were men, but the room itself was about 50-50. And I kind of like felt angry. I was like, oh, well, somebody needs to tell these women to speak up. And it's almost as if like the bathroom walls kind of came in and they're like, well, you could be the one to speak up. And I'm like, oh, I can't speak up because, you know, but first I would need to know that I don't sound silly. I need more experience. I need to work here a little longer. I mean, even though I've been there for like 11 years and all of these, but first, but first, but first, but first that like, came into my brain. And like, that was kind of my first inkling where I was like, why do I feel this sense of hesitation that like men around me just don't seem to feel? And as I progressed in my career and I landed myself in human resources roles, I actually went to go work for a technology company. And then, yes, I worked with Cy Wakeman. I'd be out doing leadership development training, working with groups. And I just noticed a difference in the way people behaved. And, you know, I would post a job as an HR person and, you know, women would say, "Ooh, this looks really interesting. But, you know, I only meet nine of the 10 qualifications. Maybe I need to go back to school. Maybe I need to get a certificate. And men would just kind of be like, hey, this job looks great. Who do I got to talk to? I just started to notice subtle differences in the way that they kind of presented themselves. I noticed it as an HR person in the amount of money they would ask for, whether they would negotiate their salary or not. And I just developed this passion from my experience in corporate that one, I wanted to see more women in the rooms where decisions were made. And two, like I wanted to build more equity, not only in like applying for these jobs, but also asking for like the money that they deserved and negotiating their salary. And that just became a very personal mission of mine, not only because I felt it, but I observed it with my own eyes. And I just believed that, or well, I believe it, but the data shows that organizations are more profitable when they have diverse leadership teams. And so that's really how I got passionate about it. That is just wonderful. And I'm really excited to talk about that, about negotiating wage and pay and all of that. And one of the hats that I wear is running Canada Career Counseling, which started in 2009 and runs across Canada. And it's psychologists primarily uh, that help people figure out their next career pivots. And and uh, confidence is definitely one of these topics and negotiating for, you know, what you're worth. And, you know, it's really, really interesting when you're able to get through and help people build that confidence. It makes a huge difference. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. And I mean, there's some steps that, you know, we can take to help folks do that. Would you like me to walk you through them a little bit? Or I would love that. And then we're going to talk about your book after that. Yeah. And I talk about this in the book, too. So this is perfect. You know, I say that... Um, <laughs> When I was growing up, I actually wanted to be a weather girl. I wanted to be the weather girl on TV. I loved weather. I geeked out about weather. And so I joke, like, talking about money should be as easy as talking about the weather. And so some of the tips that I really give, you know, really anyone to negotiate their salary is, first thing I want you to know is that I've been in HR and I just want you to know that like talking about money for me is like talking about the weather. We expect you to talk about money. We expect you to bring up the salary. We expect you to talk about the benefits. And I know when I tell people that, they're like, 
you know, I think they feel like it's some big secret that we can't talk about. I'm like, no, honestly, as an HR person, I talk about money all day long. At some point, it's just like talking about the weather. So I just want to like, you know, set it in that, that frame of context. But a couple of tips that I really love to give folks is, you know, number one, we are so lucky and that there's so much salary data out there. Like sometimes just going out and getting a little evidence about what the market is paying for your job right now, either via government websites, via some free resources like payscale.com um, or whatever it might be in your area. Um, you can just Google it. You know, what is the average salary for X job in my city? And there's just so many resources out there just to give you just some data of where you might fall. So like we can start with the data. The next thing I really want folks to think about is like, Let's not come in and just say, hey, I think I want to be paid this because it sounds good or this is what the data said, but really think about what is the value proposition I bring this organization? Like what have been my results? Like I believe that I you know, am qualified to you know, get a 20% pay increase because I've accomplished A, B, and C. And because I've accomplished that, here are the results that the organization got from those efforts. And even if you're negotiating pay, you can use that as well. I think I'm worth X because I brought this. And then I tell folks, just make your ask. Ask for what you want and then just wait. Don't backpedal, don't go, oh, you know, but if you can't do that, then no big deal. Just make your ask, give the person the dignity of time to process and then just wait for the response. And so hopefully that just, even just knowing, like when you're talking to a recruiter, we just, we expect this. This is a normal conversation taking the fear out of it and the imposter syndrome in that, well, I can't negotiate on pay. I, I don't know enough about it. Or, you know, putting yourself in a lesser position. I always say that you're two equal parties. You're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. If it's in a hiring context, if it's your current boss, um, yeah, you have a right to, to bring up what you feel you're worth. And there may be some compromise, um, of course, but depending on how you do it, I think that it works out in your favor more than not. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And one of the things you said was like fear and imposter syndrome. Here's the thing, and you're probably not going to want to hear this, but your fears, your doubts when it comes to making a big ask like this will probably never go away. Yes, you should practice. Yes, you should get your data. You should make your case. But you know what? There is a group of people on this planet who don't feel doubt. And they're called sociopaths. That's why we love listening to true crime, right? They, they lack a little doubt. Like they probably could have benefited from a little doubt. I just want to normalize, normalize, normalize that doubt and a little bit of anxiety and a little bit of nerves is normal. It's so normal. Why? Because you are a normal, healthy human being who has feelings, who cares, who wants to make a good impression, who once is stretching their comfort zone and is doing something really important. So I just want you to know that like you can make a successful salary ask while also feeling nervous, while also feeling doubtful. Like these two things can be true at the same time. Mm -hmm. That sounds like Cy Wakeman talking the and versus the or. You say that really well. It's uh, I, I might feel nervous and I'm going to confidently ask. Um, I think that's beautifully put. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, why did you write the book? Closing the Confidence Gap, and who did you write it for? Well, I think I wrote it for me. <laughs> I joke, and actually I joked about this with Sai when I was talking to her on her podcast. She kind of asked me a question. I go, Sai, I really just wrote the book that I needed to read. And I think that's a joke that a lot of authors say. But really, though, you know, it truly was 
the book that I needed when I was in corporate America. And it really took me going out, going on my own, exposing myself to a lot of fearful, scary, big things. You know, honestly, um, being part of women's groups, you know, when I was in corporate, we didn't have like women's leadership development programs. We didn't have containers for just women. We didn't have women's employee resource groups or anything like that. And so when I got off on my own in the business world, there was like these little business masterminds, you know, where you could learn skills to run your business and then be part of a group of women. It was so empowering because we talked about doubt and imposter syndrome and work-life balance and, you know, how do we take care of things at home and show up at work? Plus, we were talking about all like just the messy stuff that women go through, like parenting and childbirth and raising kids and menopause and all the stuff. It felt so safe. And I remember thinking to myself, this is what I needed in corporate America. Like I needed a place with people like me where I could share ideas, talk about the real issues that we were, you know, um, experiencing at work, like how to speak up or what happens when you get spoken over, just those sorts of things. I needed that in corporate. And had I had that, I probably would have been more effective. I would have been more creative. I wouldn't have allowed doubt and imposter syndrome to hold me back. So in the kind of my first couple of years of entrepreneurship, I created um, a training course that had all those topics. And then that training course was, you know, helpful to folks, I hope, but I think it was also just as helpful to me. And that ended up becoming the book, you know, the book closing the confidence gap is really built on the women's leadership program, I call the clarity and confidence women's leadership program. And it just is filled with the topics that I feel are one systemically happening in organizations, you know, there's a lot of systemic issues still at play that cause a lot of challenges for women. And so I just really thought about what are these tools that women need to know so that they can succeed in spite of those challenges. So speaking of those challenges, maybe you can share some of the key ones that that women are facing these days. Yeah. So the one that I feel is really big right now. And when people come into my coaching practice, this is usually the number one kind of confidence killer is the invisible workload. Um, And sometimes this looks like at home and at work. And the invisible workload basically says that women take on an extra two hours per day of unpaid labor. So this can be things like, you know, you're the only person that knows when your kids' doctor's appointments are, and you have to get them to the doctor's appointments. And you're just kind of doing and thinking all of the things at home. That's not saying that men don't pull their weight. They do. But typically, if they are a caregiver, they're doing more of the things at home where they need to feel on all the time. Well, at work, this kind of shows up as non-promotable tasks. So one of the fun things I love to do with groups is to play a little non-promotable work bingo, unpaid workload bingo. And I ask them questions like, how often are you the one that has to take the meeting notes, that has to stock the break room, that knows how to change the printer cartridge, that um, plans the birthday parties or the anniversary parties or leads the corporate fundraiser, you know, just seems to be the only person that can like do some of these kind of office-like tasks. Maybe you lead an employee resource group, but you're not getting paid for it. And so when you see women taking on these tasks, in addition to their day job, like the things that they have to do for their actual job, they're exhausted and they're burnt out. And these tasks are called non-promotable because these tasks are not showing up on your performance review. They're not contributing to your promotion or your bonuses. And so it just creates this extra burden that oftentimes men don't have at the office. You know, men typically are tasked to lead more strategic projects and those strategic projects lead to better performance reviews. They lead to more promotions. And so one of the things I'm working on a lot that I'm seeing a lot is women are leaving their workplace because they're burnout. They're not getting promoted because they're being called non-strategic. Well, they're getting too many strategic tasks. 
And so I believe that that's really creating a lot of systemic issues right now with burnout, with turnover, and really a lot of career frustration. That is really an, an important way of looking at this is what is contributing to that burnout. It's the invisible extra time um, that's that's on them. And I, I think that we really need to start looking more closely at that and uh, at the fairness around that. Mm-hmm. And this isn't just about women. Like I tell, you know, I talk with, you know, male leaders all the time. This benefits men too. Because you know what? Men are still leading organizations. The data shows that most CEOs are men. And so this impacts men because you know what? Turnover is expensive. You know, the lack of diversity in your leadership team is expensive. You know, you're not getting the revenue that you want. Not having a full talent pipeline of promotable leaders is expensive. So, you know, the invisible workload isn't just about women. Like I really want men and male leaders advocating for it as well, because, you know, this impacts the health and the vitality and the creativity of your organization. And if you want to keep talent, like we have to start thinking about equitable distribution of labor. So it actually is in a male leader's interest to pay attention to what they're delegating and who they're delegating it to. No kidding. And I'll be curious because we did a three-year project on maternity leave career transitions in Canada and how employers could better support and understand, engage and retain women through the child rearing years, as well as for the women who were you know, engaged in, you know, maternity leaves. And we did surveys and focus groups and all these things. And it was really, really interesting to to look at that. And we produced two books and I'll include them in the blog and show notes. But it, it's interesting to compare because in Canada, our maternity leaves are quite a bit longer than yours. <laughs> Ours are up to 18 months. Um, and yours are what? Well, it depends because at 18 months, is it also full pay or is it some pay? It's some pay. The government subsidizes it, you know, for sure the government, um, but then the employer may or may not choose to top it up. Aha. So that's, yeah, that's the key difference. So in the United States, um, organizations that have 50 or more employees are supposed to offer six weeks of pay of job protected leave. It does not require them to offer paid leave. What it says is, if you have over 50 employees, I just have to guarantee Laura that she's going to have a job here when she comes back of equivalent nature. Okay, and so it could even just be, I change your job title, but it looks equivalent. It is up to the employer on if they want to pay for that leave. Some forward-thinking employers do say, hey, you know what, you'll get actually 16 weeks of job-protected leave. Now, I remind you, that's unpaid. But you know what? We're kind and generous around these parts, so we're going to pay you five weeks. So you're probably wondering, oh my gosh, like how do women pay for this? Well, they have to have short-term disability insurance. And so they have to pay for a supplemental insurance that, you know, essentially then pays them some money so that they can get paid, you know, while they're home on job protected leave. And so we could open a whole can of worms. But, you know, what the United States is so embarrassingly behind, you know, well-developed or countries in terms of what they offer offer moms um, for leave. 
whole other podcast. <laughs> a whole other one. But I think this does feed into the broader context of the confidence gap. Because if I remember when I was on mat leave, and then I ended up with postpartum depression, I was not in a confident spot to negotiate pay or jobs. And I remember sitting down and trying to network and get my next gig. And I remember someone sitting across from me and saying, you cannot work part time and be successful. And I sought to prove that wrong because I didn't want to work full time at, at that time in my career. But I think that this confidence thing and Matt leaves um, play into each other. Do you agree? Oh, 100%. So let's, let's just take it back. Okay, so this was the year 2005. I had 12 weeks of job protected leave. I luckily had insurance. Um, the company did not pay you anything on top of that at that time. I had enough insurance to pay for eight weeks at home. And so I took, I took, I, th I think about eight weeks and I went back part-time then that ninth week. And then I was back full-time when my daughter was 10 weeks old. So let's talk about women and confidence when your child is 10 weeks old. Your child is not sleeping through the night, which means you are coming into work on zero sleep. Like just to get graphic, if you're breastfeeding, you have all of these things happening in your body, leaking from your body. You need to take pump breaks, you know, so that you can go and, you know, keep breastfeeding your baby and you need a place to store that. And so I want people who maybe haven't had, you know, kids to really think about what is the emotional labor that a woman who has a 10 week old, honestly, even up to a 20 week old at home, is she sleeping? Is she coming to work rested? Is she clear headed? You know, or is she thinking, I remember sitting in meetings and just to be totally transparent, totally diverted from the topic, one, because I was sleepy and two, because I'm like, if I do not get to the pumping room here pretty soon, like we're going to have <laughs> some visual curiosity here about what's leaking from my body, right? But I love that you bring this up because just physically and emotionally, that is such a toll. And we cannot be our most clear and confident selves when we are dealing with such emotional and physical overwhelm. And so that's why I think the United States has a long way to go. It really, really does. So they need to learn from Canada in that regard. Um, so I, I want to talk a little bit about um, something that is in your book, reframing parts of ourselves that we're told are flaws. So tell us more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of opened the chapter talking about how, you know, I started off in sales and you know, eventually moved into a human resources role. Well, in sales, you know, one of the things that really helped me was people had always told me my whole life that I was too direct. You're too direct, Kelly. You're a little too blunt. You got to bring a little more emotion. Well, when I was in sales, that worked great. You know, I would just make phone calls and sell things and be direct. But I remember moving into a human resources role and the CEO or the, the chief that I was supporting had made a comment. He's like, you know, you're really direct. And, you know, people may not know how to handle you. And I remember thinking to myself, it kind of just came full circle, like, oh my gosh, I've always been called too direct. And so many of the women that I work with have always been called something, too bossy, too assertive, too sensitive, too emotional. And I think, you know, systemically, this really plays into a lot of gender likability biases in which, you know, and this, again, I really want to make this about men and women. This hurts men too, because men sometimes are expected to show up and be a certain way, you know, bring masculinity, bring stoic. Like this hurts the men that might lead with more sensitivity, you know, might lead with a little bit more of some of those feminine qualities. And so, you know, when I say to, you know, to women, like, what have you always been called? 
you know, a lot of people will give me an example and I, I often ask them, well, actually, I'll ask you if it's okay. Is there something that, that you've always been told you were just too much of? Hmm. Sometimes too persistent. I don't like taking no for an answer. Oh, this is a good one. Okay. So how much time have you spent kind of trying to reel in your persistence? Hmm. I think that I, I mean, I, in some ways I, I've tried to reel it in, but in other ways it, it's paid off when I've been persistent. Cause if you don't ask the answers, no. So I've gained confidence in asking and following up and not taking the first no as a real no. Yeah. Yeah. When you do find yourself having to reel it in, is it is it kind of energetically exhausting for you to kind of think about like, oh, am I being too persistent? Should I reel it in? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you already kind of went to it, but lots of times I like to ask women, like, what have you been too much of? And men, this is a great question for men too. And they often say too direct, too persistent, you know? And I to ask like, what's the energetic toll of that? And how has that impacted your confidence? Like constantly self-censoring, sitting in meetings going, okay, am I going to be too direct here, too sensitive, too whatever? And, but the other thing I love to ask is, but what gift has persistence given you? And I'd love to know from you. You said a little bit, what, say more, what gifts has it given you? It's, it's helped me to mm, attain things that I would not have otherwise have attained by not giving up easily. Yeah, a lot of people give up after one attempt, whether it's one email or whatever, but I'll do the three attempts um, and I'll try to go about it in creative ways. And if I get an answer I don't like from a vendor or a partner or something, I will, you know, push back, but in a, you know, kind way, but still assertive. Oh, perfect. So you're leading exactly where I want to go. And that is, you know, I think sometimes and I often think I wrote this story in the book, I talk about my great grandma. She ran a farm in um, the United States, in Nebraska, right in the middle of the US in 1961. And so what was happening in the States in 1961 is she was actually a widow. But you couldn't sign checks or borrow money without a male cosign. So what that meant was is she had to run a 1000 acre farm on cash. And she was very shrewd. She would go into stores and she would negotiate to the penny. Like she was four foot 11 inches tall and people would see her come in, the workers, and they would like immediately go get the manager because they knew she was there to negotiate, to be assertive, to, you know, go get to the bottom penny. And you know, people called her a lot of things, assertive, bossy, a witch. But because she was those things, like she was able to feed hungry families. She was able to sustain her own family. She was able to create a legacy. And so what I want women to really start thinking of and men is, you know what? Because I am persistent, I create great results for my clients. Because I am persistent, I find the truth. But the key is, is like, let's not just like over rotate on this, this quality. You said it perfectly. How do I blend this quality in alignment with my values? Like I can be persistent and kind. You know, for me, my values are love, respect, family, creativity, and learning. And yes, I'm inspired by my great grandma's story. And I often think, yes, it is good to have those qualities. And how can I be direct and loving? How can I be direct and respectful? So like, let's really honor those things that we've always been told are flaws. And how can we blend those in alignment with our values so that we can really own this unique approach? Because we've been given a gift 
to um, accomplish something that needs our unique quality. Like there are situations in this world where we need your persistence. And so how are you uniquely built for that? And then being open to feedback. I think that you asked me questions and I answered in a certain way. This is the way I am. But another way would be to ask my team who works with me and you might get some of the same and you might get some different angles. And then you could ask my husband and get different angles, my kids, <laughs> right? Um, I think you come across in different ways to different audiences or groups in your life. And I think it's about learning and developing about how you're coming across and potential blind spots that I might mean to be persistent and kind, but I'm coming across as persistent and a bit rude, right? Like it's pushing the limit. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, great, like successful leaders are self-aware leaders and they're humble enough and they're curious enough to just ask for feedback. Hey, you know, I just gave that presentation. What went well? What would you change for next time? Or, you know, how did you experience this? What did you think? I think you're so wise. Absolutely. That great leaders are always curious about how they're impacting others. Exactly. So um, what's one book and one podcast you'd recommend to to further learn about this confidence um, topic. Okay, so let's go back to the money one. So my one of my favorite podcasts is called So Money. And the podcast um, host, her name is Farnoosh Tarabi. And she talks about just all things. It's all money related, but it's so much around the psychology of money and our approach to investing and just our approach to money in our life. And that has everything to do with confidence and doubt and worth. And I, I just geek out over that podcast because it's about two of my favorite topics, which is money and confidence. Oh, fun. Nice. Any books that are your favorites? Um, obviously, we're going to share yours in the show notes, in the blog, in the newsletter, um, and get it out to as many people as we can. But any other books you'd recommend that have inspired you? Yeah. So um, obviously, leaving Cy Wakeman's books aside, we already know that that's a given. I'm trying to think probably the most favorite book that I have read in the last year, one that has really stuck with me is uh, by Indra Nooyi. It's called My Life in Full. And she just talks about her journey of her life in India, um, immigrating to the United States, uh, her journey of like acclimation and just culturally being in this country or in North America, right, in general, and just her journey into leadership. And the stories are just so compelling. I mean, there's just so much to learn from, you know, one of like the first woman, a woman of color, uh, Fortune 100 CEO. Um, but she just also calls for a lot of advocacy and change in leadership and supporting moms. I mean, she talks about the only reason I was so successful is because I had support. And so I really think that that book just really encapsulates their brilliant storytelling and a very credible witness, some of the things we talked about today. Beautiful. We'll include that for sure. So a quest two final questions um, that I ask all guests is, if you didn't need to sleep uh, and you could have that time to do whatever you wanted, what would it be? probably read. <laughs> I love sleeping. But the next thing I love to do is I love just being on a cozy chair and a blanket with a book. Awesome. Me too. If you could have one wish for a better world, what would it be? Oh, that's easy to see more women in the rooms where decisions are made. Mm -hmm. And I think we'd be in a different spot in the world if we did have that. I wholeheartedly agree. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Kelly. I'm really honored to be able to share uh, your insights and your book, Closing the Confidence Gap. 
And I, I think we covered a lot of ground, um, a lot of it around women, but also a topic that can apply to anyone, including minority and diverse groups in the workplace. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much and stay well. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Where Work Meets Life. If you enjoyed this content, please rate and review the podcast as that helps me get it out to more people. Visit my website at drlaura.live and sign up for my monthly e-newsletter full of tips and resources. Please engage with us on social media and check out the podcast summary for links to my psychology practices, Canada Career Counseling, Calgary Career Counseling, and Synthesis Psychology. Stay well.